Okay, tonight I would like to talk a little bit about equanimity, maybe the poetry of equanimity. I think it's important to understand the difference between conditioned calmness, conditioned calm, and equanimity. Like, um, given certain conditions, external conditions, internal conditions, we can have a state of uh, mental calmness, like good health, good weather, good friends, or we can induce a state of mental calmness through meditation, through concentration. What happens is that as soon as uh, one of the conditions which were favorable uh, for the calmness disappears or starts uh, decreasing, uh, the calmness uh, decreases as well. So when concentration, for instance, uh, begins to weaken, then calmness uh, begins to weaken as well. In a sense, we could say that equanimity begins where calm ends, or equanimity has a chance to manifest the moment that calm, conditioned calm, ends. Because equanimity, uh, or say someone who has some degree of equanimity, can keep some mental balance despite the fact that the previous uh, favorable conditions are not there anymore and in the presence of new adverse conditions. If we have some equanimity, we can keep some balance, some strength uh, in the middle of uh, conditions which are not conducive naturally to states of calmness. There is a special, a special interest in, in Buddhism around this uh, term, around this concept. It is very much studied and dealt with uh, with great um, clarity, and uh, I'd like to mention uh, um, a complete or a very articulate definition of uh, equanimity, which we find in a, in a, in a set of uh, Buddhist texts. A number of characteristics are given uh, about upeksha, which is the Sanskrit word, or upekka is the Pali word. First of all, they say equanimity means equilibrium, mean sameness of mind in, in, in different circumstances, which is exactly the etymology of the word uh, equanimity, which in Latin means uh, of, equal, of equal mind, actually literally is of equal soul, 
but in Buddhist circles, uh, soul is an embarrassing word, so we'll drop it. <laughs> um, the second characteristic of, of equanimity is something, the closest translation of which is tranquil flow, which kind of adds a um, uh, dynamic uh, quality, which, as we will see, is important. You know, we easily tend to uh, conceive of equanimity as something static. Tranquil flow. Uh, personally, this reminds me of uh, a beautiful image that uh, one finds in uh, Hindu scriptures. For instance, in the uh, uh, Bhakti, Bhakti Sutras, in the, the, the uh, scriptures about uh, high devotion. And, and high devotion is equated to the flow of oil. You know, they say when you pour oil, you have this steady, silent uh, flow, which is something you don't have when you pour water, for instance. It's a continuous and steady flow. Furthermore, another characteristic is effortlessness. When equanimity flowers, is mature equanimity, then it's same as effortlessness, spontaneity. And finally, finally, these texts uh, make a, um, basically equate equanimity with something which in, in Sanskrit is karmanyata. Now, some of you uh, might be familiar with a, a Pali word which is kammaniya. A mind which is kammaniya is a mind which is flexible, malleable, open. Uh, a mind of liberation is mind kamaniya, as opposed to a mind which is hardened, which is not flexible, which is a mind, a mind of suffering. Okay, now karmaniyata is Sanskrit, but it's the same, and it means the capacity to intuitively respond to any situation in the right way or in the most appropriate way. And this adds an even more dynamic touch to, to, to uh, uh, the uh, concept of equanimity. Equanimity is something which should be, in other words, very apparent, very present in action. And this helps us dispel um, a few misunderstandings that easily arise uh, when we talk about equanimity or equivalent uh, words like acceptance, uh, letting go, uh, non-attachment. Uh, misunderstandings like, well, is this equanimity something uh, more or less like passivity? Oh no, passivity is fear, period. But equanimity, if it is equanimity, is peace of heart. And it's courage. 
Uh, interestingly, courage comes from heart. You can't have acceptance, you can't have equanimity without a lot of quiet courage. So certainly, passivity, namely fear, has nothing to do with acceptance or equanimity. Although the word uh, acceptance can be used in this, uh, in this way, but uh, here we don't use it in that way. Also, uh, as we were saying, equanimity or acceptance have this, uh, can have this static ring, but if we remember this karmanyata, this, this capacity to respond in the right way, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, not at all uh, static. This implies not only the possibility to take action, but more than that, to take the right action or the best possible action. If we are paralyzed, if we are passive, we are still a bit far from equanimity. We are frozen. Our practice should, first of all, melt our, our frozen state, and then we'll deal with equanimity. But we, 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 we should not misunderstand a frozen state with an equanimous state. It may happen. Uh, you know, we can sincerely assume, well, I think I'm quite equanimous. That's not true. A retreat can, can teach us a number of lessons in this respect, in, in, in revealing uh, how much we can uh, deceive ourselves, and spiritual friends also can do us a favor uh, in this respect. <laughs> Okay, um, <laughs> we're, we're talking about acceptance. In other words, uh, uh, equanimity, working for the development of the development of equanimity means developing mindfulness with a special emphasis on, on acceptance. I love very much a French author whose name is Arnaud Desjardins. Uh, he used to teach Vedanta, but he also uh, has a lot of experience in Buddhism as well. He says, uh, the path of awareness is adhesion, is acceptance. And through exercising ourselves, and if we uh, exercise ourselves, the acceptance, the adhesion becomes total. And then he says, you know, he has this very uh, strong uh, and I think beautiful expression, we should agree completely with everything. 
we should get at the real adhesion, which is a full acceptance with no compromise. I say yes to the telephone which is ringing in the middle of my lunch and while I get up I drop the dish and its content over my pants. <laughs> and I still say yes. But when my wife says, by the way, do not spend too much time on the phone, then I say, this is too much. <laughs> however, however, this way there is no acceptance anymore. Whereas it is necessary that the, adhe the adhesion, the, the, the acceptance be total, without, res without reservation, absolute. Absolutely everything. Say yes, right in the moment. At the beginning it is true, this will require an effort, sometimes an enormous effort. But I will mention a statement by Anandamai Ma, uh, a famous uh, Hindu <coughs> woman teacher. She said, sustained effort creates the state which is effortless. Remember, equanimity as effortlessness. Of course, this spontaneity doesn't mean that I hit someone who has bumped into me inadvertently. This would not be spontaneity, but rather reactivity. Real spontaneity is the right response which comes easily and immediately, like in the martial arts. Remember karmaniata, the right response. See, if you, I think a, a retreat is a very good place to see um, how much we disagree with everything. <laughs> you know, we, we, we. Do I have to mention examples? <laughs> the way other people eat, sit, walk, dress, smile, don't smile, uh, and so on. But some, somewhere inside we know that if we agree, say for instance with very hot weather, if we learn a little bit to rest into discomfort instead of uh, fighting, of disagreeing, things change. Our life changes. Of course, we could also say that this is true, but it is also true that we do accept many things wholeheartedly and enthusiastically. Now the problem is that this way we have two sets of opposites, what we accept and what we don't accept. And the constant oscillation between these two sets of likes and dislikes, acceptance and non-acceptance is dukkha, is suffering. 
And sometimes it happens in, in the very same moment. Acceptance and non-acceptance. So this constant oscillation uh, between opposites is a major source of suffering. That's why Desjardins uh, emphasized so much the need to go beyond opposites. And uh, I am into quotes tonight. Mahagosananda talks beautifully about this. Uh, Mahagosananda is a, a, me- a Cambodian meditation master. He's also the patriarch, a Buddhist patriarch in, in Cambodia, and also a, a peace act- activist. The road to peace is called the middle path. It is beyond all duality and all opposites. Sometimes it is called equanimity. Equanimity harmonizes all extremes. Equanimity is like the finely tuned string of an instrument, not too tight and not too loose. It vibrates perfectly and makes beautiful music. Equanimity means the absence of struggle. One time, a great elephant jumped into a mud hole to cool off. Of course, he got stuck, and the more he struggled, the deeper he sank. Struggling is useless. It only makes things worse. Do not struggle with suffering. Peace comes only when we stop struggling with with opposites. The middle path has no beginning and no end, so we do not need to travel far on the middle path to find peace. The middle path is not only the road to peace, it is also the road of peace. It is very safe and very pleasant to travel. So, um, increasing acceptance in our uh, lives means increasing stability. Desjardins, again, um, uses the image of um, a car with bad tires. Tires which uh, do not adhere well to the ground, do not stick well to the ground. So what happens is that the car slides to the sides constantly, no, no safety at all. The idea of acceptance is uh, an idea of living uh, through more and more adhesion to whatever happens. That's what, what, what mindfulness, mindfulness is made for. Mindfulness brings organically with it acceptance, equanimity. Uh, this Uh, way uh, of living in a more unified uh, mode and not split between opposites, not constantly threatened by non-acceptance, by non-equanimity, by non-peace, by attachment and aversion. Now, can Can we be more specific uh, about the work uh, uh, leading to more equanimity? 
Hubert Benoit uh, practiced and, and studied Zen back in the 50s. Uh, he was a, a doctor and I, I, I think a psychoanalyst. And I, I found out that, that he's been a, an important influence for uh, Charlotte Jokobek, a uh, uh, Zen teacher. In his book called The Supreme Doctrine, he says, the conquest of humility, impossible directly, supposes the use of humiliation. All suffering, previously he had said that all suffering is basically a humiliation for us. So all suffering, by humiliating us, modifies us. But this modification can be of two sorts that are radically opposed. If I struggle against humiliation, it destroys me and it increases my inner disharmony. If I let it alone without opposing it, it builds up my inner harmony. And then it gets more into the practical aspect. When I have understood, I see that all my negative states are at bottom humiliations. And that I have taken steps up to the present to give them other names. I am capable then of feeling myself humiliated, vexed, without any other image in me and of remaining there motionless. He's describing the practice. Huh? The practice is when I am capable of remaining there motionless. From the moment at which I succeed in no longer moving in my humiliated state, I discover with surprise that there is the unique harbor of safety, the only place in the world in which I can find perfect security. I think this is a very good description of our practice. Um, if we um, go to um, something having a, a, a more uh, direct Buddhist flavor uh, along the same line, although uh, somehow different. We have um, Shantideva's Bodhicaryavatara. It's powerful. Whenever I have distracted thoughts, the wish to verbally belittle others, feelings of self-importance or self-satisfaction, when I have the intention to describe the faults of others, pretension, and the thought to deceive others. Whenever I'm eager for praise or have the desire to blame others, whenever I have the wish to speak harshly and cause dispute, at all such times I should remain like a piece of wood. <laughs> Motionless. Still, 
you know, which goes, of course, into the opposite direction of our, our conditioning. And that is exactly the practice we're doing here, developing stillness in the midst of change. And change is suffering. Working with suffering is developing more and more stillness in the midst of it. And we know that in this tradition, suffering, dukkha, has a very wide range from the tiniest discomfort to dramatic suffering. And not only that, but potential suffering is suffering, is considered suffering, is dukkha. Now, we can be in the best possible uh, state, physical and mental, and yet, deep inside, we know that potentially there is suffering any moment. And that is suffering. So it's not that um, either we have suffering or we don't. On a superficial level, it is true. But on a deep level, unless we go beyond this uh, fundamental ignorance and attachment and non-acceptance, we are in the grip of suffering. So we have been seeing in the last several days that maybe when the suffering is strong, we better use samatha, the samatha mode. And when the suffering is not so strong, or in case we have a strong background in this practice, we use vipassana. But we work with change, we work with suffering. And if we do samatha, we try to be as still as possible. If we do vipassana, we need another form of stillness. But it's always the idea of being still, motionless, like a piece of wood. The point, the point that uh, Benoit makes is that you do not get to humility and its freedom through will. The point he makes is that you get to humility through the use of humiliations, which means all forms of suffering. The practice is the skillful use of humiliation is the constant application of mindfulness to all this changing landscape inside. It's interesting that um, humility and equanimity are very close terms. Humility comes from a word which means earth, and uh, equanimity is often equated with the earth and the patience of the earth in bearing everything, sun, water, snow, whatever. Now, in our practice, it's the same. We do not get to acceptance through will but rather 
through the awareness of non-acceptance, through the contemplation of non-acceptance, is an uphill walk that is very fruitful. And when we say attachment and aversion, we're saying either forms, expressions of non-acceptance, or in any case, attachment and aversion entail non-acceptance. So the contemplation of non-acceptance is pregnant with acceptance. But we don't go directly to acceptance. Say, in other words, the right effort in this respect doesn't say accept unless it's minor sufferings, it's minor problems. But rather, right effort says, watch gently your non-acceptance as the royal road to go beyond non-acceptance into the freedom of acceptance. I think there are many victims in, in, in uh, all the spiritual paths in, 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 in this misunderstanding, you know, in, in assuming that the basic uh, effort is accept then, you know, what happens? We can't, we get discouraged, and we drop out. It's happened so many times. I am bad, I cannot accept, or I don't want to accept. But the idea is contemplating non-acceptance. That's the idea. And from there, acceptance organically grows. Otherwise, it, it, it doesn't work. Of course, uh, as we were hinting the other night, it takes a major shift for, for this to happen. The shift is from either feeding our non-acceptance or uh, uh, fighting the shift from, from these modes to interest in contemplating non-acceptance in all its form, in all its forms. This is a crucial shift and it takes time, usually. When we hear that the important thing is to contemplate non-acceptance, to make friends with non-acceptance. We usually agree, and maybe enthusiastically, but we all know how much it takes to be put into practice, into life. Because we, we meet this challenge constantly. So, we need to be more and more awake through the practice of mindfulness in order, first of all, to remember to meet this challenge in the right way. 
in order not to succumb to the, the waves of non-acceptance. A, a, a soft note is played in this respect by um, a French Christian spiritual author, Jean-Pierre de Cossat, 18th century. Um, he corresponded with contemplative nuns, so fortunately there was no phone, telephone, at, uh, so we have all these beautiful letters. And in one of these letters he says, this is the secret. You should perceive all your afflictions in peace. You should perceive all your afflictions in peace. This is the secret I wanted to tell you about and I have delayed telling you this because in order to understand it one needs to have some experience otherwise you know, it's very hard to understand. Afflictions, peace. doesn't say either afflictions or peace. Afflictions in the peace, resting in uh, the afflictions rather than ignoring or reacting or resisting. This is the work of ac acceptance, this is the work of, of equanimity. You know, this in implies paradoxes, at least for the ego, are paradoxes, like sadness with not even an ounce of bitterness. This is sadness in peace. This is uh, resting in sadness or even irritation without bitterness. Because we, we manage it through the practice to, to, to uh, put some of the velvet of, of acceptance into this feeling, some softness. I think the, the, the big, you know, in a few words, the big, the big, very big question is, on a practical level, how, how frequently, how regularly, how repeatedly do we practice the contemplation of non-acceptance? Because if we do, I think abundant fruits are very likely. But as Charlotte Jokobek would say, how many practitioners want to practice? Want really to practice? You know, I don't mean to be discouraging. To the contrary, I really would like to encourage all of us to work, to develop a passion a strong interest for the contemplation of non-acceptance. It is so crucial. It's the frontier of our practice. The Buddha said, this is possible. If it were impossible, I wouldn't have told you. <laughs> and the Buddha was a champion in right speech. 
But needless to say that when our practice has some has gained some momentum, then discomfort, although unpleasant, although painful, becomes a very powerful tool for our growth. A very powerful tool to flower into openness and freedom. I remember a Westerner who trained as a bhikkhu with Ajahn Chah, Paul Breiter. He defines Ajahn Chah, the most compassionate sadist in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Because typically, Ajahn Chah, you know, whenever you started settling in some practice, would uh, take the rug uh, off. And so if you were maybe practicing in your kuti, you would say, no, no, stop practicing your kuti. And now you practice in the meditation hall. And, uh, or he would say, now um, it's time to, to sleep on the floor. Uh, <laughs> or now it's time to listen to many, many Dharma talks. And, <laughs> and, and he, would, he would put on endless tapes and people would, you know, were asked to, to, to stay there in, in, the, in the sala, in the meditation hall, late at night until 2, 3, 4 o'clock, with endless tapes. And he did, he, he did that on purpose. Of course, the, 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 the key was that in addition to be so provocative, to say the least, he was very supportive and very loving. Uh, but it was constantly challenging. So, because, you know, discomfort, as though it is as though it squeezes all our non-acceptance. And if we practice, we can penetrate our non-acceptance and go beyond it. But if we are afraid, if we want to, to you know, to be uh, uh, left alone, then all this potential of suffering linked with non-acceptance will fester inside. So if we want peace, uh, we shouldn't be afraid to navigate through non-peace mindfully. Even a a little bit of equanimity, even a little bit of uh, peace of the heart, makes a very huge difference in our lives. To me, it's very much like poetry. As a matter of fact, what so often strikes us in reading or hearing poetry is seeing that the everyday things or everyday life comes alive through the poetry. It's as though they, in, in front of our eyes, are reborn afresh, are reborn anew. And this is exactly what happens through the practice and through a little bit of the grace of equanimity, that the usual becomes unusual. often much fresher. 
sometimes awesome, just usual situations, usual faces, usual actions, usual bodies, usual eyes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.